Well, good morning. My name is Drew Burdett, and I am uh, the RDF pastor here at Boise State, uh, and also attend here. Usually I'm where you are, but here I am this morning, I'm up front, and I'll be bringing us uh, the word from Mark chapter 2. So if you would turn in your Bibles or in your order of worship to Mark 2. That would be helpful. You're probably used to it by now whenever you see me coming up here that you know that we're going to take a detour uh, from our normal uh, sermon series. So we'll be back to Luke next week, but this morning we're going to be Mark. And my hope is that to bring a little continuity uh, throughout the times when I do preach, we're probably going to be in Mark for a while. I started in Mark 1 in July of last year, and I'm sure we'll finish it in 10 years or so. <laughs> Uh, this account that we're going to look at this morning takes place in, in a house. It's not in a venue, it's in somebody's home. And it's possible, and maybe even likely, that this took place in Jesus' house himself. Now, we don't know later in, the, in one of the Gospels, Jesus says that he doesn't have a home, so we don't know if this is his actual house and he sells it, or um, if this is an Airbnb for Jesus, we don't know. But this is where he is staying at when he is back home in Capernaum. And as such, this passage gives us a beautiful window into the hospitality and the welcome of Jesus. Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when he could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes are sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, and he went out before them all, so they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for your welcome. We thank you for your hospitality, for your invitation to come and to be with you and to bring all that we have to you. And so this morning, I pray as we, as we look at this passage from early in the gospel of Mark, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And, and also, Lord, that you would, you would convince us more and more of your great hospitality and teach us something of yourself this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you can tell, from my accent, I grew up in southern Canada, right, just below Vancouver. Just kidding. I think I've used that joke before, but I never get tired of it. Uh, I, it's clear I am from the south, and the south is known for some good things and some bad things, and one of the good things that it's known for is southern hospitality. Uh, people may, be, may not always be real or uh, honest with each other, but they are hospitable in the south. And when that word is used, particularly in the southern context, what we're talking about is welcoming people into our homes. Uh, Southern hospitality, there's a bit of a, a give and take to it. And so when somebody invites you over to their house, usually there is a, uh, an exchange that happens. People will often say, well, what can I bring? And the host will tell you. 
uh, and then the host will let you know what they are providing for you. And as we look at the story of, of Jesus' welcome, as people are coming into his home, I want to explore the hospitality of Jesus through these two lens. Through the lens of, of bringing, what can we bring to Jesus? And then secondly, what does he provide for us? And as, quick, as a quick caveat before we jump in, um, this is my favorite passage in all of the Bible. I absolutely love and adore this story, and so I'm nervous this morning because I know that I'm not going to do it justice, which is probably how I should feel about every passage that I preach, but this is my favorite, and I hope maybe when you leave, maybe it'll be your favorite as well. Let's jump in. As we explore Jesus' hospitality first, let's ask the question, well, what can we bring to Jesus? Right? There's a lot of people in this house. Besides Jesus, it's clear you can break up this, uh, this group. They break up into three groups. First, there's the crowd that shows up. There's also some religious teachers, scribes who are there. And then there's this group that is simply called they. Uh, we will call them the friends, and this includes the paralytic. And they all show up to Jesus' house, and each group has different expectations. Each group has different needs that they are bringing to Jesus. And as far as we know, Jesus didn't, uh, when he gets home, he didn't put a sign outside of his house, say, 2 p.m., Bible study, right, healing following. And yet all these people just show up at his house seemingly uninvited, and Jesus welcomes them. Let's take a look at each crowd, each group, rather, and see what they bring to Jesus. Let's start with the crowds. Uh, Jesus' fame has begun to spread around the region as he's preaching, as he's teaching, as he's healing. And now he's back home, and word has gotten out. And so people come. They are pouring in. They are packed into his house like sardines. And, and given the size of houses during Jesus' day, we can estimate there was probably around 50 people in the house. So this is not a, a huge crowd. This is not 5,000 people on the hillside, but at least 50 people who were shoved in to this home. They're even spilling outside. Now, why did they show up? Why did they come to Jesus' house unannounced? And what did they bring with them? Well, the text doesn't verbally give us a reason, but we can soon, by how many of them there are, and their banter or their gossip after, right? We never saw anything like this, that they brought their curiosity with them. Or maybe, maybe it may be better to say their curiosity brought them to Jesus. They wanted to know more about this man and what he has done. In the same way, this morning, Jesus welcomes our curiosity. He's not put off or afraid of our ignorance. We shouldn't hide the, the, the things that we don't know about God. He actually delights in our questions and our interest and our desire to know more about him. He loves our curiosity. Now, I think this should, this invites us into some self-reflection. Are we curious about Jesus? Right? Did you show up this morning uh, with an eager desire to know something more about Jesus? Do you have this, this hunger, this drive, that you want to know more about who God is? Are you full of questions and curiosity? And if that's you, hold on to that, because that is an amazing thing. I think, though, that deep curiosity about Jesus is rare today. Now, I just want to give an observation and a critique before we move off the crowd. Uh, both of these don't come from me. The observation comes from Jamie Smith. He opens up one of his books with this hypothetical story. He says, you're a pastor or a church planner who has moved from Brooklyn, has moved to Brooklyn, Berkeley, or Boulder. 
Maybe you received a call to transplant yourself from Georgia or Grand Rapids or some other religious region of the country, sensing a burden to proclaim the gospel in one of the so-called godless urban regions of North America. You came with what you thought were the answers to the unanswered questions you thought these secular people had. But it didn't take long for you to realize that the questions weren't just unanswered, they were unasked. Your secular neighbors aren't looking for answers, for some bit of information missing from their mental maps. To the contrary, they have maps of their own. In other words, what he's saying is, no one cares. No one cares. The questions are not unanswered, they are simply unasked. Now, this is just an observation as we think about our culture, but we are all affected by the secular di digital age. It affects those inside the church just as it does those outside the church, which means curiosity about Jesus does not come naturally to us. Curiosity about Jesus is something that we need uh, to cultivate and to think more deeply about. Now, that's just the observation. Here's the critique. Listen to the opening lines of Richard Foster's book on spiritual disciplines. Superficiality, he says, is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. For us to be deep people, we have to foster this curiosity about Jesus, to really go deep and ask questions and learn and grow. You have to sit and do some work to engage with God in his word, and it's not easy when we have been uh, conditioned to, enter to, to entertainment and easy answers at all times. Now, ready for your mind to be blown? He wrote that in 1978, 46 years ago. I don't know what type of instant satisfaction was possible in 1978. I mean, think about it. The internet did not exist. It wasn't here. There were no smartphones. This was before streaming devices. No Spotify, no Apple Music. The Sony Walkman didn't even come out until a year later. There was no Instagram, no Snapchat, no Facebook, no Amazon Prime two-day shipping. What instant, what instant satisfaction was even possible? What would he say today about us? If they were superficial then, with the coming of the digital age, what hope do we have to grow in curiosity about Jesus today? Now, I'm not going to solve any of these problems for us. My hope, though, is just to maybe spark a curiosity about curiosity, and particularly maybe even a curiosity about Jesus himself. And this is aimed as much at myself as it is anyone else. Jesus welcomes our curiosity. He longs and delights for us to ask our questions and engage with him. Do we have any? Now let's talk about the second group, the, uh, the religious leaders. These are scribes. They would have been synagogue teachers really closely aligned with the Pharisee party. And they show up, uh, and they have expectations, they have needs of their own. They may be slightly curious, but really they show up with their grumblings. We'll see. They bring their questions and their skepticism and their doubt. And they're not hiding them. They're not hiding it. And Jesus welcomes them into his house. And so this morning, are you skeptical about Jesus? Are you skeptical about Christianity? I'm talking maybe primarily to those who have been in the church for a while. Maybe skepticism is not the word we would use, but maybe cynicism. 
maybe having believed for decades, are you now starting to nurse this cynicism towards the goodness of God or towards the ethics of God? Are you starting to wonder even if it's worth it? Well, the invitation is to actually bring that to Jesus, not to hide it away from him. Jesus welcomes our deep and hard questions. As a campus pastor, I often hear stories of folks who walk away from the faith. And often I'll hear these secondhand, and I always ask, what reason did they give for leaving the faith? And often you get the same response. Um, I had a lot of questions, or Jesus and, my, and Christianity couldn't stand up to my questions. And of all the people that I've heard say that, I, my response is always the same. When did they ever ask their questions? I don't remember them ever asking their questions. You know, having a question or having a, a, a bit of cynicism in our heart is not the same thing as asking the question or bringing that to Jesus. And so this morning, if you show up and you do have questions and you have fears and you have cynicism and you have doubts, don't shove those down. Jesus actually wants you to bring those to him, to talk to one another. Um, if you want somebody to talk to, Pastor Brian's number is uh, 208. <laughs> Just kidding, but he does have his email address in the bulletin. Ask your questions. Jesus welcomes them. So the crowds bring their curiosity. Uh, the scribes bring their doubts. Now for the best group of all. They, the friends. Now I love this group, and I have a hunch that they were all college-aged men and women. Uh, they are not afraid to give it the old college try and make things work when maybe the more rational among us would have given up and gone home. All right, what do they bring? Several different things. Uh, first, they bring a man, right? They bring their friend. Their friend's paralyzed, and they know that Jesus is at home, uh, and they can't get, he can't get there on his own, so they go, and they bring him. We don't know how many they are. At least four of them are men, and four of them grab a side of their buddy's bed, and they pick him up, and they bring him to Jesus. And when they get to his house, to Jesus' house, things begin to get interesting because it's too packed out, right? They can't get their friend to Jesus. They failed. But they don't take no for an answer. They give it the old college try. They climb up on the house. They dig a, roof, a hole in the roof. And they lower their friend down right in front of Jesus. And when Jesus looks up, what does he see? It doesn't say that he sees a hole. It doesn't say that he saw a mess or the sun shining or even people. Verse 5 said, when Jesus saw their faith. This is the second thing that they brought to Jesus. They didn't just bring their friend. They brought their faith. A lot of people are at Jesus' house, and everybody shows up bringing something different. The crowds bring their curiosity, the scribes brought their skepticism, the friends bring a man, their friend, and their faith to Jesus, and Jesus welcomes them all. Come on in. There's a standing room right up here. Come on into my house. Now, what about you? What did you bring to Jesus this morning? Because we all brought something different to him. Let's talk about the second part of hospitality. It's not just what we bring to Jesus, but also what does he provide. Now, imagine that you were at his house that day. I mean, this would have been one of the greatest days of all time, right? You're standing room only, you're up front maybe, and you're there. You've got a seat inside, and Jesus is, is preaching. And so you're scribbling it down. You've never heard anything like this. This is wonderful. And then all of a sudden, you hear some noises on the roof. And you're a little annoyed, but you're trying to pay attention. You're trying to follow what Jesus says. And then Jesus stops teaching because dirt is falling on his head. 
And maybe he steps back and uh, he sees some stuff happening up there. Everybody is looking up as dirt and debris and sticks and tile are starting to fall down. Then you see a hand stick through the roof. At this point, you just stop, right? And everybody watches what is happening. And I cannot imagine that was a quick pro uh, process. I'm thinking at least five to ten minutes at a minimum of these guys working. Jesus maybe steps out of the way as the falling dirt and branches and other building material begin to fall around him. And finally, the hole is finished and something is coming down. And everybody is wondering, anticipating, what is it? And all of a sudden you're like, it's not an it, it's a man. And they lower him down, maybe with ropes, right in front of Jesus. And the man is finally on the floor. People have looked up at the hole, they've looked at Jesus. The room would have been silent, I imagine. All eyes on Jesus wondering what is about to happen. What is he going to do? Look at verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Okay, everybody who's at his house gets something from Jesus. Let's start with the man who was lowered, right? He's part of the friends. What does Jesus provide for the paralytic? Well, forgiveness. Now, we read this, and we have, we're, we're thinking, that's not what he wanted, right? Probably, I think you messed up, messed up, Jesus. Forgiveness, I think he was expecting healing. But we don't really know. Maybe that's what he wanted, maybe not. What's clear is that when Jesus saw their faith all collectively together, it led him to give forgiveness to the paralytic, which also shows us that he brought something else to Jesus. He brought his sins to Jesus. Now, what is forgiveness, really? What is Jesus giving this man? The best definition that I've ever heard came from Jesus, not surprisingly. It's in the story that he told, a parable called the parable of the unmerciful servant, and it goes something like this. I'm just going to tell you the beginning of it. There was a king who wanted to settle accounts. Uh, he had given many servants right, money to go and invest and do stuff, and now it's time for them to show back up and give their, their money back. And there was this one uh, servant who owed him 10,000 talents. Now we hear that and we think, that's probably about $10,000, right? Well, no. Just so that we can understand the story, a talent equaled 20 years' pay for a laborer. 10,000 talents is the equivalent to 200,000 years worth of pay. And so if you made $40,000, that would be $400 billion is how much he, would, he owed. So Jesus is basically saying, hey, there was a king and there was a servant, and the servant owed him a bazillion dollars, right? Incomprehensible. And since he could not pay it back, he had apparently lost $400 billion. He had nothing left to give. And so he can't pay it back, and so he argues, he says, look, be patient with me, I would love to pay you back. And the king says, no, it's not going to happen, so he orders him to, to be thrown into prison. But after his, his cry for mercy, the king says, you know what, I'm going to forgive your debt. And so he canceled it. 
which means that the king will never see that $400 billion again that he loaned out. And what Jesus is saying is that forgiveness has to do with canceling a debt by absorbing it yourself. The king was only able to forgive if he was willing to lose all of the money that he had been that he had loaned out. So forgiveness is canceling a debt by absorbing the loss yourself. And so as the paralytic shows up at Jesus' feet, he apparently brings a debt with him. He brings his sin with Jesus, and he receives forgiveness of that sin. His debt canceled before God. Which shows us that Jesus was only able to forgive him because he is God. Because you can only forgive someone of the debt that you have lent. This leads us to the second group we need to talk about. The scribes. All right, they bring their questions and their skepticism and their doubt, but what do they receive? What does Jesus provide? Well, Jesus provides them with food for thought. He doesn't ignore them. He actually engages with their questioning and even engages with the grumblings of their heart. I want to reread verse 8 on because I want to get this uh, dialogue out in front of us. After forgiving, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you know, may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all. I think this is incredibly interesting. Jesus has a lot of people in his house. Some who are incredibly curious. Some who are full of faith, right? Friends on top of the roof, the man at his feet. And yet he stops to engage with the skeptics. He doesn't say, hey, you know, there's not a lot of room in this house. I'd like for you to exit out the back door and let's let somebody come in who has some curiosity. Let's let somebody come in who has faith. He lets them in and he engages with them. Now, the, the argument can be a little bit confusing. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or stand up and walk. I've just said both of those. They're both fairly easy to say, right? But technically, it's probably easier to say your sins are forgiven. The reason for that is because how can you prove it? You can say, I've forgiven your sins, but the sins don't disappear. They don't just kind of wash off of you. You can't see them. But to say to somebody who's, who's paralyzed, who's a paralytic, stand up and walk, that is incredibly hard to say, because if they can't, right, you didn't really say it. You didn't really powerfully work and, and, and heal them. And so in order to prove that he can do the easier thing, forgive sins, Jesus does the harder, more obvious thing. He heals the paralytic man. The point of the healing is to prove that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins because he is God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And he's saying, exactly. I am God. See, Jesus knows their unbelief and their doubts. They don't like him. They don't believe that he's God. They don't think that he can or should forgive sins, but he does. And he gives them reasons to put their faith in him. And just like the man on the mat and the folks who are looking down from the hole in the roof, he meets them where they are with what they brought to him. Now, what about the crowds? What does Jesus provide for them? I think it's safe to say they got their money's worth, right? They were full of curiosity. They wanted to know about Jesus. They were able to receive teaching, preaching straight from Jesus' mouth. The drama 
of the roof being ripped off this house and a man uh, uh, being let down on ropes in front of Jesus. They were eyewitnesses to Jesus declaring his divinity and proving it through healing a man. I mean, they got front row seats to a theological debate. They got their money, money's worth. Right? They end with saying, we never saw anyone like this. Like Curiosity met and curiosity kindled. Who is this guy? As we wrap up, I want us to think more deeply about the invitation of Jesus' hospitality. As he's at home, minding his own business, resting, he welcomes all these different people who have different needs and wants. He welcomes the cynic, he welcomes the skeptic, he welcomes the seeker, he welcomes the repentant, and he leaves no one unchanged by this encounter. Jesus' hospitality was not free. It was costly. And I'm not just talking about the roof damage that he had to repair. Jesus' welcome and hospitality cost him everything. In the Gospel of Mark, there are ten stories, ten conflict stories between Jesus and the religious leaders. And this is the first one. And as you follow through the narrative, these stories, the, 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 the drama increases until they finally climax in the crucifixion of Jesus. And so when Jesus that day, in front of a crowd of 50 people in his home, said, Son, your sins are forgiven, he knew exactly where this robe was going to end up. It ended at the cross, and it was always going to end at the cross. The cross was not an unfortunate ending to the story of Jesus. It was the price of his hospitality. It was the price of his welcome. It was the price of his forgiveness. See, the cross heightens and deepens our understanding of the hospitality of God. The Apostle Paul, a New Testament writer, he picks this up in his letter to those in Rome. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you understand the beauty of the hospitality of Jesus? that he invites us all to bring what we have, our questions, our skepticism, our curiosity, our burdens, our fears, our anxieties, our anger, our doubts, our faith, our hope, our gratitude, our worship. He invites us all to come to him. We are welcome. But isn't, he doesn't just invite us to come. He also gives us something. We receive from him grace and friendship, and kindness, and forgiveness, and challenge, maybe and even rebuke or correction at times, enjoyment, salvation, forgiveness, truth. He is hospitable. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account um, that, that is pretty wild. Lord, that these folks just show up unannounced at your home and you met them where they are and invited them in and welcomed them. And This morning, Lord, we come from all types of walks of life and different backgrounds and some maybe are, 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 are struggling, some are bored, uh, some are full of thanksgiving for you and Lord, you and your hospitality and grace say, come, you're welcome here. 
And Lord, I pray that we would come into your presence and that we would continue uh, to desire to know more about you and that we would receive from you what we desperately need. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.